Welcome to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. This is our second chat with Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor. In this second chat with Richard and Mary, we talk about the Bhagavad Gita and its teachings on yoga in the light of their recent book, When Love Comes to Light, Bringing Wisdom from the Bhagavad Gita to Modern Life, a fantastic book if you haven't read it. Four, as much as the Bhagavad Gita along with the Yoga Sutras are the two major books studied by yoga students around the world today, it's still not much discussed how we might practically and realistically connect the teaching found here to both our asana practices and our lives. So this is what Richard and Mary have really tried to do in their recent book, and we discuss in this conversation such themes as what does embodiment mean in the Bhagavad Gita, and how does it relate to our asana practice and emotions? Do we need to have a game plan in our overall approach to our yoga, and our lives perhaps? Indeed, how does the performance of yoga asana relate and guide our approach to everyday life maybe, or does it? The role of discipline, stroke tapas, and how the middle way might look. The meaning of sacrifice and devotion, and the ideas of duty or performing one's dharma. A very confusing notion in the current day when our dharmas aren't so clear as maybe they once were. As always, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation when you listen to it. And if it's touched you in any way, don't forget to leave a comment and let us know your thoughts. And equally, we're always appreciative of any donations if you have the capacity and the will. Thanks as always for listening. And I really hope you enjoy the show as much as I did with Richard and Mary again. So welcome Richard and Mary to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. Right, welcome Richard and Mary, the podcast, Richard and Mary, and Mary on her own for a fantastic podcast. And now I have your, your company again, so thanks for agreeing to come on again from Thailand this time. Yes. Thank you. I can hear the cicadas or whatever. Is it cicadas singing, you know, the chirping? Is that what they call them there? There are so many. So many little There are so many different kinds of insects, yeah. but there have been swarms, I mean, literally millions of cicadas. Yeah. Right. And uh, they're well, less now. They were deafening. Really? They were oh, yes, deafening. yes. I had that in Turkey as well, where they're just so loud that you can't even hear yourself speak it. So, it hurts. Yeah, yeah, and they kind of rise up in a wave and then they drop down, right? You know, kind of get like crazy and then they just stop and then they start again. Yeah. Really strange, yep. isn't it? Anyway. We'll, we'll try to Well, get yeah, yeah, when they don't sing, then you speak and then <laughs> let them sing and then we'll listen to the singing maybe. Um, so we were going to talk today about the Bhagavad Gita. Um, there's a lot to talk about. We can see how much we can fit in 45 minutes. If you haven't read Richard and Mary's book on the Gita, um, please do. It's a really interesting take on the Gita. And a lot of it is, um, I remember particularly thinking um, this idea of visceral embodiment. And you talk a lot about the battlefield and the sounds in the battlefield and the blowing of the horn. And, um, you know, it's an incredibly poetic text. And I mean, you know, and I think... People don't often give it credit for the, the the way it grabs you from the start. I mean, you know, Arjuna's there on the battlefield, and Richard, we were speaking before about how this is more appropriate than ever in the current situation we're facing with Ukraine, and um, and it's really well explained. I mean, Arjuna's there saying, "My bow, his bow is falling from his hands. He's trembling, you know, he, you know, and his hair is standing on end, right?" And it's a really well, um, you know, described, uh, you know, uh, explanation of the feeling in the body, and I think that. You know, yeah. what we're trying to do in yoga is it's not rational. It's it, it's always been since Vivekananda, the idea of an experiential state that we're trying to in, embody or engender. So I was going to try and get you to maybe say something on embodiment in the Bhagavad Gita today. 
Um, I'll, I'll throw it over to you for a second. <laughs> well, as you brought up, one of the things that happens is, you know, when the story begins, they're in their heads, they're in their roles as who they have been trained to be for their whole lives. And then when they blow the conch shells and when they ride into the field and hear the conch shells being blown, that vibratory quality that any of us have, if you hum, if you chant, if you happen to be fortunate enough to blow a conch shell, it makes it so you cannot think in the typical way where you uh, might not really show up for what's actually happening. And so it's from the very start, that's when uh, Arjuna starts to ask questions because he it makes him pause. Right, because they blew their divine conch shells. The other, the enemy had already blown theirs. And just like armies everywhere, they'll do songs and music before they slaughter someone. Because it's almost a kind of sick religious practice that, you know, or they'll beat the drums and, you know, march with their boots. The and so it's a, just a kind of Tomasic religious practice that allows people to do that. And then, but they blew the divine conchs, and Arjuna was just like, oh my God, because he was just vibrant. Uh, and then he did that. He said, wow. And he almost, you know, he was awestruck. And he asked his friend, let's pull me up on the middle path between the two armies. Um, which is a key thing, um, because it has a Buddhist hint right there. Oh, the middle path. Oh, the, the yoga, the sushumna. And, uh, and there he saw, and literally it says he saw but one family, because he had on both, he saw on both sides all these different people, uh, that he had all these different relationships with. He had teachers on both sides, old friends on both sides, some really bad people particularly on the, the other side. There were some psychopaths, you know, some oligarchs who were out of control. And uh, and then he said, well, this is crazy. You know, if it's all truly one family, even if one side wins, you know, there'll be so many people killed. How are you going to enjoy the... You know, what's the point? You know, we're, yeah. we're not trying to get a kingdom... Is this the point? Kingdom, yeah. yeah. I mean, is that the point? The yeah. confusion that he feels is, yeah. is that a fertile ground for practice? Because people often say these days, oh, we need a game plan. You need to know what you're doing in yoga, your aim. You need to know the aim. But my, my you know, it's like, well, begs the question though, doesn't it really? It's like, well, if I knew the aim, I probably wouldn't be practicing in the first place, right? You know what I mean, isn't, <laughs> yeah, isn't, even call it yoga. isn't the fertile ground, that, that state of the end of chapter one, where Arjuna sits down and kind of throws his hands up, puts his bow down and I don't know, you know, I don't know what to think or what to do. I had the idea that I was a warrior and I had an obvious career path and, you know, everything made sense and I could enjoy all my pleasures and, you know, and then suddenly it's like, you know, he's in this place where he just doesn't know anymore. Which is the key thing that we face anytime any of us are in these conflicts. And, you know, this idea of seeing it as one big family. When you reflect back on your own conflicts in life, or for instance, the Ukrainian conflict right now, is, you know, or conflicts between Ashtanga yoga and some other form of yoga, 
you know, it's really <laughs> one big family. And the, you know, the sort of chittavrittis, the mind states get so twisted and distorted thinking this is better than this or I must know this and I, you no. know, have to do this and have my game plan that it, that's when the distortions start to happen. And when you can, mm. you know, sort of almost like you've tightly wound a, 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 some sort of string or something and then it pops, th at that moment, there's this ability to have insight that, wow, you know, we are all in this together, which is one of the primary messages of the Gita, but also mm -hmm. in our own daily lives, when we can just have someone we're conflicted with or a group of people we disagree with, and then realize, you know, there is so much more to it than whatever it is we feel conflict mm -hmm. about. Because we are driven often to have these visceral feelings of conflict you know, the being pumped up with adrenaline um, because we care. But then we forget that it's that we care. We are become attached to our ideas. And then the then the embodiment piece disappears. And that's that's spoken about consistently in the Gita. Does practice, yeah. does practice get in the way of that? I mean, obviously, like, I mean, you know, you're most well-known for Ashtanga Yoga um, and, you know, and... Uh, and you, Richard and Mary, both have done many series of these, you know, and, and does the practice, I mean, you know, and our audience is, you know, let's be honest, probably a lot of Ashtanga yoga practitioners. And, uh, you know, does this linear semblance of progression get in the way of something deeper sometimes that we're trying to find? You get more identified. I'm, you know, I'm a practitioner now that can do this, this, this. And there's more identification and more separation with the other rather than less so. Yeah, there's identification. Yeah. There's identification that the body, that's me. And so if, um, and in that case, you, you really, if you think deeply about, you know, what Arjuna was seeing, you don't really know what to do because it's so deep and complex. You know, the history, uh, if you just start looking at the history of different countries or civil or human beings or any species, the universe it's just like wow it's it's stunning and you have this moment of like wow i don't know <laughs> and and that's really and so arjuna says i don't know what to do just tell me what to do and uh and the interesting thing is krishna does not tell him what to do uh initially he said oh if you don't do your your initial duty this is important then you're not showing up for others you know and everybody's going to laugh at you, basically. And 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 Arjuna really uh, wasn't interested in that because that didn't really solve his problem, which was he saw suffering, and he saw this endless kind of misery. And throughout the entire Gita, Krishna never tells Arjuna exactly what he should do in that situation. Uh, but he says, you know, uh, and basically, he was telling him to find out what you should, you know, you'll have to act. And, but you'll, and then when you act, if you act without attachment or thinking that you are the body, uh, then you'll be, you won't be relying on something outside you to make you happy. 
And then you'll actually learn from, even if you make some, like in science where you make bad hypotheses or in medicine, you know, historically, you, out of all sincerity, you know, you'll, a surgeon or a doctor will try something and they don't know what to do. And if, they, if they're not trying to prove something about how great they are, and uh, then they'll look and see, oh, that wasn't good. <laughs> but without shame, you know, they'll, they'll adjust it. They'll adjust. So acting will actually give you uh, information. And the information, never sure, but you. But if if, if you can give up this the sense of thinking that I am the body, which is what the initial teaching was, which comes off as a little bit obnoxious in the second chapter. Krishna says, you know, Arjuna is like basically crying, you know, and for him who has the you know because he has the best posture and he's strong and he's super intelligent and. Uh, and he's basically broken down, and Krishna laughs. You know, he says with a smile, "But you're you're, you're crying for that which you shouldn't cry for." A, a, a pundit, a wise would never do that. You know, how, why are you being so dumb? And then, then he says, "There was never a time when any of the people here did not exist, nor would there ever yeah, be a time when yeah, they don't yeah, exist." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful, Watch it's out. a beautiful passage, actually. Yeah, yeah. Does that? I mean, how how does the, the the practice that I mean, try to kind of bring it back to a subject which people know and, and, and you know, practically respond to is that what practice that we're doing in yoga, I mean, as I see it, it is generally or over the over the eons being framed as either an ascetic practice of renunciation or there's karma yoga, which is maybe a third practice which we see in the Gita a great deal, or there's this battle between renunciation and karma going on, you know. Um, or there's, a, you know, I don't know, Richard's slightly interested in this, there's a tantric ideas of yoga, right, that there's some kind of transmutation going on in the, in the alchemical body, right? I mean, do we, how, do, how, do you, uh, how, do you, how do you think that the Gita relates to yoga? And um, how, do, how, do we, or how do we use one of these streams to disidentify from our body because I think what we see in, in my own experience is that Ashtanga yoga without any game plan at all although I said at the start a fertile ground is not knowing without any idea of what you're doing one can start to become a little bit uh, hubristic and, and uh, you know rather proud proud about one's uh, you know ability and how one feels rather good and healthy and you know at least in my experience <laughs> Yeah, that you're yeah. absolutely right. One is tempted to take testosterone or something. <laughs> or some other that would disqualify them. And they, but I think it happened. I think, I think, honestly, I think, you know, I think it's happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, I think we, we may have even talked about this mm. at other times, but part of whether it's in the Gita or whether it is with the Ashtanga practice there are these, uh, you know, various levels that we work on or that we exist on, that we show up for. Um, and in the Ashtanga system, that one of the levels one shows up for is the physical practice. And it has structure. And the structure is, you know, somewhat predetermined in a sense, even though an intelligent practice, one goes to that practice and then modifies it as need be. But there, it's not like you are having to think 
about what to do with your physical form when you are doing your practice. And so that level of thinking that might be distracted by, well, what am I going to do next? Am I going to do a back bend or a forward bend? You know that. And so you can go into a deeper meditative state, which really is what you're saying in a sense uh, with these different forms of yoga. You have the ability to drop into mm. something that resonates within your own experience in that given moment that might be a feeling of bhakti. It might be a feeling of intelligence. It might be, you know, the embodied experience of doing some karma, of taking some action. Um, and so, but the mind, it's almost like the mind is being tended to because it's, it's moving with the breath and the, and in a form that it doesn't have to think about. So with, with the yoga, you get that a little bit and in, and, and then you can go any one of those doors, any one of those forms of yoga, they take you to the same place ultimately. Ultimately, yeah, the Gita would say there are the same, mm -hmm. um, but that sometimes um, we all have within us, you know, the uh, bad motivation where we naturally we, ident we naturally identify with the body. That's almost like that comes with the territory of having a body, and so the whole mind, the whole ego structure, and so we go through periods where we're actually. Um, you know, just trying to achieve something. You know, I want to become, I want to become like the god Indra, or I want to become, you know, an oligarch. I want to become a, a dictator because, and have all people bow down to me. Um, and this has happened in yoga many times. And there's the whole last part of the Gita is about yoga gone bad, and we all think, oh, I know someone who did that. And then, but. As you, if you then apply the beginning of the Gita, where he's teaching about Sankhya and then Yoga as being deep, if you really look at them, they're the same thing. That we all go through phases where, you know, we have this, our ego makes us want to achieve something. And so we, well, what's the best method for me to achieve, you know, just like a healthy shoulder joint or something, you know, or, you know, so, and then. But the idea is then you see, if you're able to, if you're really practicing, you see your mind being egotistical. And so that's, a, you're seeing part, so the mind is also a subtle body, and you're seeing that, and that's part of the practice. Um, and then occasionally you'll be rajasic, you know, rather than tamasic. Yeah, which just occasionally, yeah. Like, <laughs> that's the high point. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the good part. That's the good part. Yeah. yeah, you're getting all excited about, you know, the fame and fortune <laughs> and, you know, maybe getting your own planet, you know, from your yoga. And a lot of these things are promised in some schools of yoga. You know, you get your own planet, have your own solar system. Um, and, but it's, and that's natural that, and then finally, when you see, if you see that, oh, that's not actually me, that's just part of the subtle body, um, then you go, oh, and then you can almost laugh at yourself, or then you see, oh, that actually is cutting out 
all of the things that really matter to me because I've actually learned that seeing the beloved in all beings is what yoga actually is. And so that's defined earlier. And so on the, the sixth chapter on actual normal yoga practice, Krishna keeps re-emphasizing, oh, you just go really slowly and you start, and the real yoga is when you see me in all beings and all beings me, then you're satisfied. And then you don't care about and these things. And occasionally, and so it's, it's a, a nice way of letting your own mind and ego nature manifest and seeing that they are ultimately, that's, they are part of the embodiment. They are actually Krishna. So even when my uh, demonic mind manifests, which happens a few times a day, but I'm infinitely angry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before your coffee. Um, what about um, this, uh, there's this constant interplay between renunciation and action, you know, like Samkhya and yoga, right? And, you know, they're kind of like, well, what's better? Should I just, I mean, you know, Krishna says, well, you know, but I mean, first of all, sorry, Arjuna is saying, well, I, you know, I don't want any part of this. I'm going to renounce. It seems the obvious course, right? And we're, we're with him in the first chapter. Like, you know, don't, you know, like Ahimsa, don't, you know, don't kill, don't kill anyone, you know, just sit down, you know, and it's kind of a surprise in the, the open opening of the second chapter where Krishna is quite bloodthirstily. He says, go into the battle, kill and be famous, you know, like, you know, right? I mean, it's, you know, so it's, you know, it's an active, if we contrast it, say, to the sutras, for example, which is a very much a renunciate text, the Gita is a, a householder's active text. I mean, should we be using our practice not just as renunciates, as a kind of quietest thing, going into our caves, or whether it be a man cave at home or an actual cave in the Himalaya, you know, and we should we be actually using our practice for action in the world, for social action in the world? Because as we all know, the cliche is you've got 5% of your life on the yoga mats, you know, and most of your yoga must be inevitably elsewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, you know, our experience is that that's a a very, very good question. And that, yes, that we do our practices in order to be um, more interactive and of better service in the world, in our circumstances. Um, And if you are practicing well, whether you plan to do that or not, it happens. It's, a, it's something that it's almost like this residue that happens if you practice consistently over a long period of time mm. the way the sutra, yoga sutra, you know, recommends that if you're practicing well, you feel better, you feel healthier, you feel happier, you see others more fully. And whether you plan on it or not, it's almost like your practice just filters out into the other aspects of your life. And then when you have the intention of doing something good in the world, then you have the momentum going to actually make a difference and actually take action that that um, will make a difference. And there is some response, you know, once you practice for a long time, you start seeing actually there is a lot of responsibility, responsibility. to do that. Yeah. And so Krishna, maybe chapter five, is, he's saying if, you know, I don't need it. He was explaining to Arjuna that I don't need anything, you know, being 
Who being is? Brahman, you know, and <laughs> being you know beyond time and space and thought, and he says, "Yet, um, if I didn't act, that would set set a bad example for others." And so I always, I'll be, I keep coming back and coming back in order to help others. And so, which is really the idea of the bodhisattva in Buddhism, you know, like I come back, you know, just to show that. You know, serving others is really the uh, the ultimate mm. yoga practice. Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, Mary, you hit upon something with the uh, the, the sutra quote, which uh, is you know consistently with the right uh, right attitude, right? Um, and that kind of ties in with the idea of duty in the Gita. I mean, this right attitude and the duty in the Gita I mean, isn't that a kind of million dollar question, right? Like you know, like. Especially these days, I mean, I think in chapter 17 of the Gita or something, you know, Krishna says, well, you know, your duty is obvious, right? You're in the Shatya class and the Shudras do this and, the, you know, and the, the, the Brahmins do that and, the, you know, um, and the Shatras do that. You know, it's kind of clear, like, your, you know, your duty, you know, the cow herding and he lists a bunch of stuff, right? You know, the, the, you know, each one do, right? You know, that's not really appropriate, obviously, these days for most of us that aren't with cows <laughs> you know but you know but like but partly partly in the mahabharata and the gita that's also like an obvious in the, the greater story uh it's almost making fun of the caste system because there are many examples of, or characters in there who have to violate you know what they what they think their social caste is in order to help others um and so the Mahabharata, I think, make, you know, you always have, yeah, in the Gita also. And so, but you'll always have classes, even if you have a, a pure communist state, uh, which is maybe coming, you'll, you'll still find that there are characters within it who are more elite, you know, who organize things, or who have all the money or all the power, or who exploit others. So social caste, is something that happens in any group of people. Okay. And, but in traditionally in India, is defined by varna or color, which is referring to your skin color, basically. Which is like, whoa. And, and there are a number of characters in there that, uh, you know, this is almost being made, you know, you can't get rid of the fact that people have, but you find out what your actual dharma is. Rather than that which is given by birth, is that you know which is your swadharma, and your yeah, and and, and your dharma becomes something that is very context dependent. Yeah, and I suppose the question is how so, how do we know what that might be? Our duty, our you know, our, our right attitude towards yeah. life, you know, and does yoga help figure that out? I think it does. I mean, I think that you know. My personal experience with that is that, you know, it is very, very helpful to have an, an acknowledgement within your own sort of private mind space somewhere of what it is you feel you want to um, contribute to this world, you know, to, to perhaps alleviate suffering, to perhaps bring peace to the world, uh, something that really, truly is sort of a big thing that that is like your pole star. And then 
if you have that, then you and you kind of know, oh, I have this particular dharma for this instant or this moment or this uh, role that I'm in as a teacher, as a mother, as a you know student, etc. You know, you have a particular dharma. But then when you step back and say, and underlying that is, is my ethical underpinning, which again is spoken about in the Gita, it's spoken about in the Yoga Sutra, that having a sense of, of your svadharma essentially being something that is ethical ground, whatever that means to you, that then starts to help you see, oh, well, you know, this situation that I've put into this story of what my dharma is needs to be tweaked a little because of the dissonance between my ethics and my uh, moral ground and the context. And so yoga helps us to see a bit more clearly. And in that vision of things a bit more clearly we begin to be able to see where our dharma is taking us and where we can uh, yeah. navigate it. Yeah, to evolve to yeah. our swadharma. And then if you think you know your swadharma, find your swa-swadharma. <laughs> you get that. You yes. just keep adding swas to it because it's always beyond what you think it is. And that, And finally, at the very end, you know, it's like, um, Krishna is explaining, you know, just whatever you do, just do it, you know, for me and other beings, you know, everything will work out fine, basically. And then he says, do it and, and then do what you want, Arjuna, meaning in this situation, find out what you think is the best thing and do that. And give up old arms. And then he says, yeah. he pauses and he says, oh, and then he comes, because you're very beloved to me. He couldn't, he resisted, he thought he'd finished the teaching. Then he said, Sarva Dharman Parit, give up all dharmas. And this is, a, again, the, the uh, Dharma Mega Samadhi that's in the Yoga Sutra that is actually, you know, uh, uh, it's a Buddhist concept. There's no other mention of it. Uh, but give up all these dharmas and just take refuge. It doesn't come to me, take shelter in me, which is again a Buddhist kind sharanam mam ekam sharanam varaja, just come to me for shelter, for refuge which is again a Buddhist term and uh, but you're giving, you're seeing through all dharmas you know, duties, formula, even good dharmas because that's all the great scriptures you know, and all of the great religions that when interpreted well are good, and all of them are empty are all of them are they form this cloud of prakriti, which are just gunas acting on the gunas, and what's your problem? <laughs> you're back. You're thrown back to the second chapter. It's kind of like he gives um, all but, these teachings, and at a certain point, he just says, "Well, if you can't do any of that, then just um, yeah. act, act, but uh, don't be attached to the actions." 
And, you know, yeah. Right. Like, yeah. You, you can't do yoga or you can't think. Well, don't worry about it. But you just act anyway. Just do your action, but don't be attached. What does that mean? You know, what does what does being? I mean, you hear this <laughs> actions, but act, but don't be attached to the fruits of your actions, right? And that's constantly in the Gita, again and again and again. Yeah. What I mean, you know, people try this, right? You know, like the, you know, in in daily life, and you know, um, and it's rather hard, you know, because uh, yeah. you know, we want well, certain you outcomes, you know. Yeah, actually speaking. Yeah. <laughs> when you <laughs> when you try too hard to not be attached to the fruits of your actions, you become quite attached to not yeah. being attached. Yeah, and so as the yoga personality is formed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so you know, really, what it 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 means is you have to have some aim, but then you have to also be able to you know, start moving towards whatever it is and then reframe whatever actions you're taking, whatever um, aim you have, reframe it according to the circumstances that arise. And so it's not just, you know, don't have any attachments, meaning, oh, I don't even care if I ever do anything and I'll just sit here and watch, you know, TV all night. (laughs) Um, which actually sometimes sounds like a good solution to things. Don't become attached to that. To that, yeah. yeah. Um, but but that you that you really truly you know make you know you have some chi. You've got some ideas about what you want to do, but then you don't hold on to those ideas of what they are. Right, because somehow you feel intrinsic happiness, mm-hmm. intrinsic joy and you're not depending on any circumstance for that whether you're loved by others or hated by others and this is again you know many times in the gita you know what does it matter if and and so one of the things and interestingly krishna keeps redefining himself because we start out with this oh krishna is just you know he's god and what does that mean actually <laughs> So Arjuna is going to investigate that, and it doesn't have, mean exactly what he thought it meant, um, because and Krishna comes down off of the the pedestal that we've placed him on, and which we naturally do because that whenever you think oh that's that no oh, that's the guru or that's Ishwara or something, um, you have an idea of what that is, otherwise you wouldn't even use the term in your mind. And you place them on a pedestal, either up in the air or down below, like a, a Greek theater or something, you know, a, a lowly pedestal. But And what Krishna keeps doing is he keeps coming off the pedestal and saying, no, I'm, I'm the pedestal and I'm this. And he keeps appearing. He says, this is me. I am, you're experiencing me. And this is where embodiment comes. You're, you're experiencing me in the taste of water. It's not like the water tastes because I, as a distant creating deity, created a causal chain that made water taste good. No, I am I am actually the taste. So you're having an immediate experience or the smell of the earth, you know, which is, and I guess even that would be stinky earth sometimes, you know, but... And that's really what and, non-attachment and so, is, is when you are able to see see that and experience those things as, as 
so much more rich than your idea of say what water is mm. or what Krishna himself mm. is. And, and so, so you're not actually giving up the theistic Yeah. I mean yes, when 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 Arjuna finds it if you like oh because it doesn't make any sense anymore. And and the non attachment becomes sort of a gesture a, a sincere gesture of generosity to others because you you are not invested in the outcome. You are invested in the authenticity. And that's really where the, you know, it becomes a, a gesture of generosity, a gesture of interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. You hear so much this devote to me, right? You know, uh, what does that mean? I mean, you know, like, devote to me, it's like a little point of, like, right, how does that mean, you know, what does that mean practically speaking? It's kind of like saying, well, you know, like, all you need to do is just concentrate on me, that one principle, right? Um, and then there's, you know, and, and to kind of qualify that question, then I think in chapter six, we get a lot of talk about sacrifice, the need to sacrifice, right? So some people sacrifice their breath, some people sacrifice their food, right? There's a whole long list of, you know, you know, Force. Yeah, force, right. They sacrifice their speech, you know. Um, yeah. you know so Brahman is an offering Pana poured upon Brahman, they, right? So, into a pana yes, right. So what does, what does sacrifice and, and devotion mean in terms of one's life and practice? It's a rather large question yeah. really to throw at you. Sacrifice, yeah, that's all. Yeah. It's, it's one of those words. That means you're giving to others. And if it's the quality of the sacrifice, if you're giving with expectations of something in return, um, then it's not really a sacrifice. You're not sacrificing. It's not a deep sacrifice. Uh, but most ritual, sac most, yeah, practice is a sacrifice. You know, I'm going to sacrifice, you know, my early morning hours to do, you know, some yoga. Um, or And if there's that expectation, um, then it's a low quality and it's but it's very common like most you know sacrifices are done you know there's so many examples later in the, the Gita of tamasic or you know what you're simply crazy and you're making a sacrifice to you know prove that the earth is flat or something or, or some conspiracy theory uh, or you're you're doing it just you know to get respect of others or you're going to make you know a lot of bitcoin a lot of money if you perform this but it's a sacrifice that you're giving something that matters to you you know like my time or my uh you know passwords or <laughs> well, but, but I, you know and it used to be blood you know they sacrificed right, right, right. blood yes yeah, so i, I suppose there's people are very afraid of the term devotion and sacrifice these days you know and it crops up a lot in the gita and it's just kind of i suppose kind of, kind of, yeah just kind of reframe that because it's as relevant as ever yeah. i think we all feel the need yeah. to devote we all feel the need to sacrifice but yet in the popular a mindset these days it's you know like oh we've been there before we're not going to be you know duped again kind of thing you know i'm my own person i don't you know devote to anyone else kind of thing you know but you know <laughs> as as you're talking here it, it brings to my mind uh what happens for parents who practice yoga um you have children and you are you have my practice and then you want to do your practice, but 
because you really have this incredible devotion to these other beings, um, your practice becomes different often. Or you, I, I was thinking of myself once wanting to go to a workshop with this Iyengar teacher, Mary Dunn, and, and then, no, I couldn't go because our son was needing me to be there and me thinking, well, you know, at first thinking, oh, I'm just going to, oh, I'm having to sacrifice not going. And then realizing that it this has the overlay with this idea of Dharma. My Dharma was, my Dharma really at that stage in my life was to be the primary support for this child. And when I was able to go, ah, that's so nice. It wasn't like, oh, grumpy, I'm having to miss my practice. It was, wow, of course, this is the appropriate action here. And so the sacrifice, you know, often will get us, it'll, it'll kind of get, it's like getting a thorn under your fingernail or something, but then you pause and look at it and realize, whoa, this is a wake-up call to, to really see what is the Dharma that is here. And am I giving this sacrifice again, like, uh, you know, with non-attachment? It's not, there's no attachment. Which is more like a complete sacrifice. Yeah, yeah and, and the, the Vedic metaphor is people would sacrifice, but then there would be residue, because mm-hmm. they were really sacrificing with a motive of either getting out of here and going to Indra Loka for a long time, um, or they wanted something, or they were sacrificing so that the rain would come, or stop coming, or whatever. And uh, But then the, the metaphor, even in the Gita, is um, the sacrifice is this Brahman, which is this in, unexpressible, unspeakable, unthinkable, Reality, which is ultimately you and Krishna, and that's what sacrifice is. It's placing the whole universe on the altar of just pure pure awareness. And it doesn't mean you hate the universe. You might. It's a good sacrifice, particularly if you have something nice to place to give off, like all of your good ideas. You sacrifice them for the sake of others, and they they're upgraded by that. <laughs> Um, and but a lot of us, you know, it's my idea. I want. I'm not going to. They think sacrifice means to destroy it, to kill it, to to suffer. Sacrifice. Yeah, sacrifice when done um, in the way the Gita talks about it is part of this idea of taking refuge mm. and um, and it and it's something you want. And it's not a sufferance, because, right? It's not. A, I mean, I yes, think that's really is important. Not, is that he says, you know, it's like, way, yeah, it's he, a really pleasant. Yeah, but don't, you know, don't thing. don't beat yourself up because you're, you know, you're only beating me and the body up. I think he says at one point, right? Exactly. You know, like, you know, to to paraphrase it. And it also reminds me. I'm not going to quote the chapter because I'll get it wrong, and Richard will correct me again. But you know, I think it's on the seventeen <laughs> or eighteen, seventeen or eighteen. Let's say when he says, you know, that pleasure which is first like poison and then transmuted into nectar, right? So it's that, that I, yeah, yeah, and it's beautiful because I think these days it's like we're thrill seeking, and there's like well, not all of us maybe, but you know, that that constant wish to have immediate gratification that's really so problematic. 
static, right? You know, and this idea of just pulling back and just waiting and, and sacrificing that immediate desire to be entertained or have something take a mindset off. As you said, Mary, gradually something else comes through when you drop into that space. Think, I can't go to the Yenga workshop and have my thrills there. And then, you know, if you just pause and come back, and I think that's the beauty of yoga, is it just allows you that to be able to rest in that space and contain yourself exactly. in that space and wait. Uh, whereas usually it's yeah. like you can't you can't do that. You just want to go. Yeah, I can't. You know, I just gotta just gotta go there. You know, just gotta gotta. Yeah. I was gonna yeah. ask you, Richard. Um, there's a particular um, uh, quote that I want I want your help with. So he says something like, um, "What is it?" But um, let me find it now. Uh, I, I can't find it, but I'll say it anyway. Pr- uh, putting the vital breath in the head and the mind in the heart. That part, right? Do you know that that uh, quote that I'm talking about? Um, trying to find it in a. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a, it's in chapter eight. He says, uh, "Yeah, controlling all the sense gates, placing the mind in the heart and the vital breath in the head." And it's kind of interesting. It's like, well, okay, the mind in the heart, <laughs> the mind in the heart. Kind yeah, of, we mind. understand that, and the the vital. I thought it was the mind here and the the breath here. Something is backwards there, but uh, it seems like it's backwards. That's what I was going to yeah. ask you. Unless my translation is very, way, very but, bad. But really, yeah. the mind, yeah. but the mind actually um, goes. But the mind is the manifestation of uh, of just symbols and patterns that are uh, a product of breath of or prana. So and so, the, you realize that. Sensation patterns or prana patterns um, are like samskaras, and they any thought you have, even a good thought, has a sensation pattern through the chakra nadi system instantly. Even a, a wonderful thought will still have, even if I think about no thought, you know, in a good way, which is pretty hard to do. Uh, that'll have a uh, a sensation pattern, and so the, and if you're practicing smriti or mindfulness, um, then you you go back and you just go back to the sensation pattern, and you let the the symbols or the language pattern that arose from it, the story, you let that go, and so the the, the story function actually rests here along with other beings. In the heart. In the heart. Yeah. Hmm. And the and the breath, the breath in the head. Yeah, that's Kundalini. You're right. That's Amrita. <laughs> so that's it's a tantric. Verse, yes, yeah. that's that's what I assumed. Yeah. And we experience that in the practice when you practice, and the the breath becomes sort of like this uh, vibratory quality and and a mantra. The mantra of the breath, it sort of allows the mind to soften, and it it softens the rough edges of the mind, and the mind wants to be in the heart, because the mind is so often just, you know, having to decide, having to do all this stuff, and then it gets all hyped up, but when the breath is there, it's almost like, you know, softening it, and then the mind settles back down to where it naturally belongs. Where, and it really is this feeling of prana and apana meeting, 
and meeting at different levels along the central channel that you experience when you have a, a free and deep practice that you know doesn't have to be all powered up, it, it, but it's very, very internalized. And you feel it. You and I, I'm sure you felt that where you really feel this vastness of heart, and that's when the mind has has stopped its its trip for a little bit. And then, of course, it comes right back. But you know, it, it, there are moments of it, and it's very, very wonderful feeling. Um. Just to kind of finish off it, you know, just as we were talking, I remember the quote from Richard. Um, I think I, a couple, maybe a couple of people have said this, but I'm sure that you've said this, Richard, in a video. I said, don't let yoga ruin your life. That you, that oh, yeah. you've definitely uttered that, right? But it see, you know, but it seems like in the sutras and the Gita. I mean, you know, like if you follow them to the T, if you follow them to, you know, as they as they as they're meant to. You know, I mean, you know that, that's pretty life-ruinous stuff, right? I mean, you know, saying like, you know, oh, those yeah. people that have understood me have no purpose in the world at all, right? You know, or in the sutras, for those, someone who understands, the world doesn't exist anymore, right? I mean, you know, so, yeah. you know, are we, how, how, are we, how are we to relate to this text? You know, are we to take it to degrees or, you know, is it, you know, is it a question of relating to quite radical texts to degrees or understanding that we still want to, you know, most of us, we still want a life in the world. We don't want our thoughts to stop altogether you know right do we have to be do we have to be re, do we have to be realistic or you know like how, how do we relate to this quite well, radical message well that's, that's interesting because a lot of times our understanding is based on a dualistic interpretation of what sankhya is because you know, sankhya is one of the, you know the gita always comes back to it and it's one of those funny wonderful uh, systems in that the mind thought um, all of these things, they are this, what are called in the Gita, daivi prakriti. Um, you know, that it's obvious to see that the elements of the body, you know, which you feel like, you know, oh, it's touch and smell and all of this stuff. Oh, that's sacred because it's like part of nature. But then the mind comes along and uh, we don't realize that the mind is also uh, they call that the jivatma, um, and that the jivatman, which we think is our individual story, you know, which goes lifetime after lifetime, you know, forever. Once I was, a, you know, once I was an elephant, then I was a swan, and uh, that that also is that's daivi prakriti. It's just gunas acting on gunas, and so that isn't you. Yeah, so. yeah, and Richard's quote actually is um, not, don't let yoga ruin your life. It is the statement, yoga ruins your life, meaning yo yoga prevents you from becoming distracted and creating a life of suffering. Um, can we do the both, though? The can we pursue pleasure? And also oh, yoga, yeah. right? Because, yeah. I mean, he says, I mean, the start is quite clear. Sensory contact is the cause of pleasure and pain. You must just bear them. And this time I've got a chapter, chapter 2, 14. <laughs> chapter 2, 14, right? So, I mean, that's pretty good. It's like, yeah. it's so like you can't you, enjoy pleasure around, anymore. Then. You know, job done. You know, it's like, well. <laughs> but, yeah. And so the, under, the understanding of, because your mind is creating one, the idea of what pleasure is, all of these things, 
they are again given as an offering or a sacrifice. And so let's say some good food, okay? And so say, like if I'm Franciscan or something, I put ash in my food so it doesn't taste good. And there, there's sadhus in India who will do that, you know. Oh, that tastes too good. But a lot of the great practitioners, you know, are, are also connoisseurs of like really fine flavor and the flavor is shared with others. Um, and in that way, uh, and so this is how the whole bhakti movement evolved. Oh, the, 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 the taste of water, the, the fragrance of the earth, you know, the flavor of this, all of those things, you share them with others. And it's not that the others then become attached to them as sense objects, the sharing then has a tremendous value. Um, and so if we, say, share good coffee, um, you know, that's the holy drink in some parts of India, okay? Other parts, it's tea, they eat. And, uh, and so you want to get the best you can, and you prepare it, and you say, oh, here. And because it's really good, you're like, oh, thank you, that's like really good stuff. And you go into the flavor but you don't become attached to it as a sense object because it was a gift from the beloved. And you're like, oh, and you just really feel yeah, yeah, yeah. strong connection yeah. with the beloved. I think um, that's a great qualification of the, the, diff, the difficulty that we have with this idea that we either fully invested in pleasure or we're doing yoga, you know, and we, we can't enjoy anymore. And it's the, the gift is a great idea yeah. because I've had that so many times where you're given something as a completely spontaneous gift, you really enjoy it. And then you just go back and try and get it for yourself. Like someone bought you a piece of cake somewhere, right? Like, and then you go back yourself and do it and get it and you don't enjoy it. Right. Cause it, <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't a gift. Right? Yeah. Again, cause the mind misperceived it. It's attached to and it. created an yeah. object. Yeah. Made a, labeled it. Yeah. Reduced it to some code, you know? Yeah. Just to, to finish yeah. off. I mean, for people, um, what I mean, this is just a you know a cursory question after our rather deep preamble on the Gita. Um, what still motivates you both to get up and practice every day? You know, and what does the, and what does the, and what qualities are you looking? What's if you could label the quality of your practice? What is it that you're going for now? Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, as the body gets older, um, it kind of starts to break down. And yes. Even and I should feel the truth of permanence <laughs> yeah. right there. Knocking on your doorstep, hello. You know, the Grim Reaper has come. And so you, and yet if you just go back into the breath and the actual practice, there's the sense of like, ah, is inner pleasure, even though the body would buy from medical a medical perspective, you should be hospitalized. <laughs> um, you you feel like, ah, oh, what a relief. Um, just to do the breath, or just to, you know, just to practice. Um, and so then we think, oh, and if you think, well, if I can get my body healthy rather than giving up on it, oh, I should just go, you know, into, you know, uh, a, a you know, 
what's it called? Retirement. Retire, well, the retirement <laughs> home, or hospice or something. Yeah. Just to, just to die. Rather, you know, let me get as healthy as I can, even in this situation, so that I can serve others. And then you think, well, how can I serve others? Well, I could, you know, for us, it's like we could share about actual what embodiment means rather than, you know. And, and, and there's a joy in that. And then the, the subtleties of the practice still work, uh, even though, you know, the, the, the joints might not be working like they used to. Or they, and, and there is also that element that you've had, anybody who's practiced yoga, where when you practice, you know, the cloudiness of mind or the confusion of mind, or, you know, problems that, you know, have been sort of wedged in the back of your mind, all of those things start to have a little more clarity. And so to, for me, it's, it's partly this physical, you know, if I do not practice, my body is much more, uh, it, it doesn't feel as good as it does if I do practice, physical practice. And when I was younger, that was not the case. But now it is definitely the case. But more so than that, what motivates me is that, you know, I do feel more able to deal with, you know, daily life um, and uh, with a little more clarity if I'm lucky. And so that motivation is is always there. And uh, and. You know, so in a sense, it is a very pleasurable thing to practice. Um, and it seems that it gets more so as you do get older, even though it may be on doesn't, subtle levels. Doesn't look yeah, good. yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> to the outside observer, it probably doesn't look as good. But, yeah, you know, like, to the inner... When is he going to start When is he going to lift up to those straight legs handstands? <laughs> Away with that. <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure to spend time with you again, and uh, thanks so much for uh, yeah, for giving me your time. Okay. And yeah, um, I don't know where to end it. I'm usually useless at ending, so I'll just thank you very much. And um, uh, I recommend anyone to go and see their studio talks on their website if you if you have a few minutes spare between cooking your your dinner and uh, watching Netflix. Yeah. Go and go and yeah. <laughs> as we were talking before, <laughs> Richard's got this idea of kitchen yoga now. So you know, five minutes while you're waiting for yeah. your egg to boil, do a few yoga postures listen to richard and mary talk about a bit of philosophy right thanks richard and mary thank you thank you thank you good to see you